That's our scripture reading tonight. We'll read the Catechism Answers together, Lord's Day 5, page 12, in the back of the blue hymnal. We'll turn there in just a minute. First, let us hear from God's Word. As we've done the last few weeks, we'll be jumping around to several different passages and then focusing on mostly just one verse in Galatians 1 towards the end. But this is a helpful passage to set our minds right in thinking about these issues and to see the importance of the gospel and particularly that we get it right when we aim to proclaim it. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's holy and inspired word. People of God, attend to his reading. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Lord's Day 5 of our Catechism, page 12, back of our blue hymnal. Let's read the answers together. Man's deliverance. Questions 12 through 15. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full either by ourselves or by another. Can we pay this debt ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our guilt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. Besides, no mere creature can bear the weight of 
God's eternal anger against sin and release others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? He must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, he must also be true God. A a deliverer is one who does more than come to you in your trouble and meet you in your trouble and sit with you in your trouble. A deliverer rescues you out of trouble. A firefighter does not train and make it his or her aim to go into the midst of the fire and simply stay there with those who are found to be in the flames. The idea is to have the ability, the knowledge, the power to break them out of their trouble, to get them out and to save them. That is what deliverance is. That is a deliverer. He rescues you. He brings you away from the danger. He saves you. We've just recently finished the the first part of our catechism, the first section. We learn about the inescapability of God's justice. Men and women of the earth will try to create a God in their own image, uh, ironically. The God who created us after his own image is the God who is perfectly just. We, We... Perhaps in our fallen minds, we want to think of a God who can wink at sin. We want to think of a God who does not deal with sinfulness, but it doesn't change the truth of who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And that's really the way that uh, Lord's Day 4 ends, the, the inescapability of God's justice. But that highlights, just in a slight way, in Lord's Day 4, it highlights the great hope for us that God is just and merciful. Remember, that's the last question there on Lord's Day 4. God is is merciful, but he is also just. And the, the glory of the gospel, of course, is that we find God's justice and mercy in the exact same place. It's only in Christ that you can hold to a God who is both just and merciful. Perfectly just, he offers up his son to satisfy justice and wonderfully merciful that he gives him to uh, his people in order to atone for our sins. That's what belief in the gospel does. That's what uh, believing in the sufficiency of Christ's work does. You believe in the cross, you look to the cross, you look to Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. What you are proclaiming to the world is that I believe in a God who is merciful and just. That I could be saved in no other way. And look at the extent to which my God went in order to accomplish my salvation. So I trust in the sufficiency of that work. Because I know that my God is not just going to wipe my sins off of my slate without actually having them atoned for. 
So this, this idea of satisfaction is obviously central to the scriptures, central to this section of the catechism where we are. As we go from uh, man's sinfulness to man's deliverance, here we see satisfaction and justice still central to the thought of the author's of our catechism. Three ideas tonight, and we'll go to, through various texts as we think about it. First is the necessity of satisfaction. Our sins must be satisfied, or, or the punishment of sins must be satisfied. So first, the necessity of satisfaction. Secondly, the impossibility of satisfaction. And third, the possibility of satisfaction. Necessity, impossibility, and possibility. First, the necessity of satisfaction. Question 12 is a bit of an interesting one, isn't it? Question and answer 12. Uh, Question 12 says this. According to God's righteous judgment, um, and assuming that all of this is true, how shall we escape his punishment? How shall we get out of the predicament in which we find ourselves? And answer 12 is a little bit evasive, isn't it? It goes back to justice. It says, God requires that his justice be satisfied. In other words, it doesn't just say immediately the way out. It doesn't just say Jesus Christ. No, it wants to bring us to the point where we understand and realize that justice is satisfied in Christ. It's wanting to, in a sense, bring us through that so that we realize the glory of the gospel in a greater sense. So it reminds us of our inability, doesn't it? As we go through the words, these beautiful words of the catechism, we're brought to the foot of the cross, the glory of the gospel. Every time the anticipation builds, what does it highlight? It highlights our inability to save ourselves. Our wisdom, our righteousness, our piety, it all amounts to nothing before our great God. It highlights also God's consistency of his character, like we've just said. He is a God who uh, will see his justice satisfied. This is the God who does not change, who has never changed. This is the God who calls the things that are not as if they are. This is the God who quickens the dead. This is the God who speaks life out of nothing. And indeed, that's what happens in his salvation. His redemption is a bit like his creation. There's, There's a bit of a connection there. He's calling to life things that are not. He's he's bringing possibilities out of impossibilities. That's the glory of our wonderful, redempting, uh, redeeming, sorry, God. The satisfaction is is a main theme of Scripture. The word satisfaction means to do enough or to make something right, right? To do enough. God is a God who will have his justice satisfying. And he's shown from the beginning of scripture that he does enough to make it right. God is the one who does enough. You have that beautiful picture right after the fall in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve try to cover themselves. They try to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And then after God gives them his gospel promises, what does he give them? He gives them animal skins that greater cover their shame, right? Uh, Showing to us that our own efforts will never be enough. But God will always accomplish things perfectly. Abel's sacrifice later on in Genesis, it was enough. It satisfied God. 
he did enough. Why? Because he brought from the firstborn. And God was pleased with his sacrifice. Genesis 4 verse 4. Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 11, the divine commentary on that passage. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. So the idea of satisfaction is to to make something right. We we think of satisfaction more of an emotive uh, state of being. I'm I'm satisfied with this. You, You eat a good meal. What do you say? I'm satisfied. This is a forensic, this is a judicial sense of the word satisfied. Satisfied justice. To have justice satisfied implies that there's an obligation. It's not just punishment. It's it's more than that. And when we think about ourselves as creatures of God, we realize that we have an obligation to God, don't we? He has created us. And he has commanded us to glorify him, to enjoy him forever, to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the the unceasing obligation of all of God's creatures. Each and every moment of each and every day, we are called, we are commanded, whether fallen or not fallen, we are called and commanded to love him with heart and soul and mind and strength. We are born with this obligation. It's what it means to be a creature Created by God in his image. We are created to love him. But we have another obligation. When we think about judicial satisfaction. Not only do we have an obligation to love God. Heart, soul, mind and strength. We have an obligation. A debt for sin. We must pay the debt for our sin. And it's different than the way that we normally think about debt. Or obligation. Right? If you take out a loan, borrow some money, or you owe some money on something, usually that's a, that's a pretty good deal for, for both sides of the, of the deal there. You get a chunk of money, someone loans it to you, the profit that they make is the interest that is charged. And so both sides of the party are happy. You get your bill every month, and certainly trying to be a good person, you pay that bill. It keeps both sides happy. The obligation for our sin that we have to God is not like that. Uh, To offend against God's holy law, it's not as if there is some outstanding debt that we little by little pay off, like loan from a creditor. It's different than that. To live in a judicial debt to God, as we owe owe him for our sin, is to live really in darkness and wrath. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. There's no long-term payment plan. There's no monthly payment, no monthly bill that comes in the mail. To live without God being satisfied judicially, according to ourselves, is to be in death. It's to be in misery. It's to be in danger. If, if God does not look upon someone and is satisfied, according to his justice, that person is in danger. Satisfaction in Scripture We see it in many places. Exodus chapter 23. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty, God says. Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. 
the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see this all throughout scripture. God must be satisfied. His justice must be satisfied. But as we see in these uh, in this Lord's Day in our catechism, what is there? There's an impossibility. Just like Adam and Eve with, with the fig leaves trying to cover their shame. It was not good enough. As we think about it according to our own work, we cannot satisfy God's justice on our own. We cannot make it right. We cannot do enough. Certainly as we think about bearing the punishment for sin and what God has appointed for eternal punishment for sins for those who do not repent and believe the gospel. We know that human beings can bear punishment. It's possible to bear punishment. But it's impossible for, uh, for us in and of ourselves to make satisfaction, to make it right, or to do enough. In his commentary on this catechism, Herman Huxemas says that the murderer who dies by capital punishment does not atone for his sin. Sometimes we speak that way, right? Someone who... Uh, uh, goes to their death because of a crime, we may say, well, they atoned for their sins. Actually, they didn't. They paid for their sins, but they did not atone for them. Why? Because they don't give up their lives willingly. Someone who goes to the gallows or to to the electric chair or to lethal injection is not giving up their life willingly. And they don't have a righteous life to give to God. They pay for their sins. They bear punishment, but... Uh, they do not atone for their sins. We think about the impossibility of satisfaction another way. If God were to come to us and say, okay, so let's, uh, uh, let's say I'll forget all of your past sins and from here on out, I'll give you an opportunity to serve me in the way that I command you. Love me heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day in perfect righteousness and perfect obedience. Would anyone take that deal? No, of course not. Every time that we sin and we're remorseful over it, we go to our God, we repent of our sin, and that feeling that we have of saying, I don't want to get stuck in this rut again. I, don't, I want to stop struggling with whatever it is, anger, lust, jealousy, envy. I want to stop struggling with it. We feel remorseful over it. Perhaps we make promises to our Lord if we get caught in a situation we don't want to be in. Lord, I'll never do this again. And how often human beings fail at their striving. If God were to give us that kind of opportunity, no one would take it. And the the catechism reminds us that daily, in fact, we increase our debt. As human beings, body and soul together commanded and given an obligation to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means every moment we are working, thinking, choosing, speaking, acting, all of those things need to be oriented in that way to the service of God, body and soul together. Every moment that obligation to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength continues to stand against us. God commands that it all glorifies him every faculty of the human being mind body and soul is to serve the creator and so scripture cries out it echoes this impossibility doesn't it 
It highlights for us that this is a hopeless endeavor. You want to make satisfaction. Whether thinking about the obligation that you have for righteousness or the obligation to pay for your sins on your own, it's hopeless. Job chapter 9. Indeed, I know that this is true. How can a mortal be righteous before God? Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Job 15, if God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt, who drinks up evil like water. Job 22, Job once again, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? In other words, do you really think that you can stack up some kind of righteousness that's going to impress the eternally righteous one who sits enthroned above the heavens, whose ways and whose being itself is righteous? What could we do that could impress God? Luke chapter 17. So you too, when you have done everything you were commanded to do, should say we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We have only done what was our duty. Any shred of righteousness that human beings can stack up to God, it's something that we were already obligated to do because he is our creator and we are his creatures. It's impossible to do it ourselves. Can we find anything that could pay the debt for us? Can we find anything that would make satisfaction for us. And if you think about it in terms of that two-pronged obligation that we have, the obligation to be righteous and the obligation to pay the debt for sin, you see how hopeless it is, but the catechism goes through it anyways. Is there a creature that we could offer up to God that would cleanse us of our sin? But where in all creation, brothers and sisters, can we find a creature that we can so call our own that we can offer it to God in our stead? In this world In God's world, what so belongs to us that we could give it to the creator himself and say, this is what I give. Because what do you need? You need something that you either have enough authority over it to call it your own, or someone offers up their life willingly, willingly, and does it freely. Also, we have no right to tell God what he must accept on our behalf. If you owe someone $100, you have no right to go to them with $100 worth of one-week-old groceries and say, here is my payment. You have no right to do that. In a much larger way, we have no right to tell God what he must accept on our behalf. It also stands against us this idea once again of our love and our worship. God has created us as worshiping beings. Human beings have no choice whether or not they will worship. You will worship something. The question is what you will worship. And human beings created especially for this act of worship. This life-consuming act of worship shows to us, it magnifies the problem of satisfaction. Bulls and goats were not created in this kind of particular way. They give glory to God, certainly. 
They testify of God's power and his wisdom. But it's human beings as the image of God who are created for the worship of God. And that tells us something about what God would accept in our stead to satisfy his justice. Sadly, human beings, often we convince ourselves that it's that idea of the scales, right? Good deeds outweighing bad deeds. Most faith systems throughout the world, that's basically what it comes down to. Islam, Buddhism, etc. It comes down to the good deeds outweighing the bad deeds. You see the ways in which that will proliferate into the minds, the activities of people. Many people spend their time doing many worthwhile things, wonderful things, building institutions, giving money to hospitals, all of these things that are so wonderful that can help the world. We talk about that a lot. But is any of it going to add up to anything in terms of righteousness? No. We come to the realization that only a human death can atone for sinful human life. Hebrews chapter 10, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The catechism also has this reference to the mere creature. Can any mere creature take away our sins? The idea there is to highlight for us that only the Lord of glory, only our Savior Jesus Christ, who is both God and and man will be able to sustain the burden to the end. The second Adam needed to be both human and divine for that reason, so that he could bear our sins for us. It's impossible. This impossibility brings us to the, the point where we realize our desperate need for the gospel. So the impossibility of satisfaction then brings us to the possibility of satisfaction, which is the the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 highlights it quite well. But when we think about it in terms of, uh, as creatures, we cannot possibly satisfy God's justice, what does it make us feel? A desperation, a desperation to be saved, right? You feel the, the, the flames closing in on you. I need to be saved by someone else. Jeremiah chapter 23. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our salvation. The Lord is the God who saves. Galatians chapter 1 says that it's Jesus Christ who gave himself. You think about it in terms of satisfying justice. Satisfying God's justice, the idea of Jesus giving himself takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? You can't find anything all throughout the world. You can come to God and say, this is what I give in my stead. Because there's nothing that you can claim authority over enough to where God would be pleased to accept it. So what happens? The Son of God willingly gives himself to satisfy God's justice for you. Jesus Christ freely gives what we could not give. A righteous life, an atoning sacrifice. He freely gave what we could not find in any other creature. A willingness to go to the cross for us. 
He freely gives what we could not find anywhere else. And where do you find it? You find it in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. Jesus Christ gave himself to do what? To deliver us. To deliver us. To save us out of our sin. To go in to where we were and to take us and bring us out. But in order to do that, what needed to happen? He needed to be forsaken, didn't he? Forsaken. You think of the words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in giving himself, was forsaken in body and soul. Why? Because we have bodies and souls. He suffered bodily. He suffered spiritually. He comes under the wrath of his own Father for us. Pretty amazing thought, isn't it? You think about Jesus Christ suffers body and soul so that in this life, our suffering is only bodily. Reminding a dear brother of that this week in the hospital bed, feeling weak, feeling his mortality, and you say, your soul is being strengthened day by day. You're you're growing stronger day by day spiritually, even as your body grows weak. Jesus suffered body and soul so that we could have and enjoy eternal life now, here and now on this earth, so that our suffering would only be bodily. His suffering was unlike ours. And certainly our suffering oftentimes is very intense. No one wants to go through it. And yet all the while, God stays with us because of the work of his son. See, Jesus was forsaken for you so that you will never be forsaken. You think of the, there's a warning here in this too, isn't there? There, there, There's a very serious warning. If you consider the length to which Jesus had to go in order to make you right with God. And that that is the blessing that all those who are in Christ, by grace, through faith, enjoy. Then what happens to those who are not in Christ? Look at what Jesus had to withstand. Look at what Jesus had to undergo. The wrath of God the Father Almighty. Sufferings and torments of body and soul. That's what awaits those who are not in Christ. Terrible warning for us to remember to heed the words that God reveals reveals to us in Scripture. As our deliverer, he had to do what? He had to pay our double debt, that double obligation that we owe to God, the obligation of righteousness and the obligation to pay for our sins. Jesus paid both of those. He pays a debt of love and obedience. That's why it's so important that he lives a perfect life. As the second Adam, he was righteous at every moment. He served and loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He lived exactly the way that God commanded. This is how I want my creatures to live. That is what Jesus did for us. When the, when the catechism says we need a righteous man, that's what it's talking about. A sinless man. A man who offers up a positive righteousness. But then he also pays that debt of punishment, doesn't he? 
Not only does he offer up a positive righteousness, he offers up his body as an atoning sacrifice to cleanse our sins. Hebrews chapter 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He is a true man. He's a true man. God is pleased to accept a human sacrifice for human sin. In order to deliver us, as it says in Galatians 1 verse 4, he had to bear the penalty without becoming himself culpable. He bears the penalty for sin without himself becoming stained as a sinner. Amazing truth. He is that deliverer who goes into the depth of our need and who brings us out. Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. There are some modern theologies of the cross that are unable to express the way in which Jesus can redeem us. They're, they're good about talking about the way that he identifies with suffering, but that's kind of where it stops. That Jesus on the cross is suffering with uh, the lowly and the needy of this world. But as you have Jesus Christ bearing the wrath of God and sustaining it to the end and coming through the other side and leading a multitude of uh, children of God in his train, that is a deliverer. One who goes and passes through and comes out the other side victorious. This is the wonderful truth of our Savior. A couple thoughts of application as we close here tonight. The first is this. Understand that it's not just that God hates sin, but it's that sin hates God. Why does God hate sin so much? It's because sin hates God. Puritan Richard Sibb says this, when you sin, does not your heart wish that there were no God who could see it? Does not your heart wish that God was not witnessing that rebellious act? And is it any wonder then why God hates sin so when it hates him so? It's not just that God hates sin, it's that sin hates God. Think about that. Secondly, we need to see sin in the death of Christ that we might learn to hate it more. See sin in the death of Christ. Sibs goes on. See sin, therefore, chiefly in the death of Christ. How odious it is to God that it could be no otherwise purged away than by the death of his beloved son. The catechism does a wonderful job of bringing us to this realization. No other way than by the death of his beloved son. It says, all the angels in heaven and all the creatures in the world could not satisfy divine justice for the least sin. We need to see sin in the death of Christ that we might learn to hate it more. Third, let your thoughts of the awfulness of sin feed into the comfort and joy you take in Christ, your only mediator. As you grow by the grace of God to hate sin and to realize the awfulness of sin, let it feed into the comfort and joy you take in Christ, your only mediator. Sibs once again. The deeper our thoughts are of the odiousness of sin, 
the deeper our comfort and joy in Christ will be after. Therefore, I beseech you, work your hearts to a serious consideration what that sin is that we cherish so much, which we would leave God and heaven to embrace. Let it feed into the comfort and joy you take in Christ. Then lastly this, stand to see all of God's work in mercy and grace, saving you according to justice and mercy, and marvel at the breadth, length, height, and depth of the mercy of God and the love of Christ. Marvel at it. The mercy of God, the love of Christ. Let it move you as you consider satisfaction, the satisfaction of justice. Let it move you to an emotion of satisfaction, to be satisfied in him alone. For he alone can satisfy your needs. He alone can give you that for which you so long, as you consider the satisfaction of God in Christ, let it bring about a satisfaction of your soul. As we said earlier, Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You fear God, love him, reverence him because of the forgiveness, the salvation, the redemption that he worked for you in Christ. One theologian says that we stand by the gap that's caused by the fall and the disobedience of man. That which separates us from God. We stand by the gap and what do we realize? We realize that It is only, the only possibility is that Christ fits exactly and perfectly into that gap to bring you to the Father, to bring you to God, to bring you to eternal life. Stand and marvel at the mercy of God and the love of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you, we thank you for the gift of your word particularly the gift of your gospel. We pray that through this gospel proclamation you will give life where there is none. We pray that you will soften hearts unto these truths that we might be pleased to serve you all of our days of gratitude and thankfulness, realization of our obligation to you as your image bearers, Thank you for giving us a seat at your table and for calling us your own. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Christ's love. We pray in his name. Amen.